Just Our Real Estate, episode number 276. All right, guys, thank you for joining me today on Just Our Real Estate. My name is Mike Simmons. I am your host, and today I have a great show for you, and I am really excited to dive in and start sharing some content with you. But before I do, I want to talk about something that I think is often not talked about enough. It's not emphasized enough in a lot of people's business. Everyone wonders, how am I going to find money? How am I going to fund deals? And what do I do once I get a uh, property under contract? And how am I going to hire contractors? And oh, I'm so nervous. But what people fail to do well and what I think is lacking in a lot of people's you know, goals for, the, for their business and what they're spending time on is they're not spending enough time generating leads. You are not a real estate investor if you're not generating leads. You can't get a deal without first getting the leads in the door. And how best to do that? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? We've talked about them on the show a million times. You can use realtors. You can um, you know, network with other real estate investors you can you know put out bandit size you can do a lot of things but one of the ways that people are not doing it and not doing it effectively for sure is online lead generating websites and I'm talking about a website that when set up can deliver organic leads and by organic I mean you're not really paying for them or at least you're paying very little for these leads and they're coming through your website every day people are coming to you to sell their house and you get to sift and sort through all these leads and find the best ones that you can invest in. So I highly suggest that you make part of your business plan right now to get a lead generating website up and running and have it working for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is an often overlooked aspect of this business, but don't overlook it anymore. Go to my website at juststartrealestate.com on the right-hand side, click on the Lead Propeller banner. Now, what is Lead Propeller? Lead Propeller is it's a service that allows you, using their software, to set up a very, very nice lead generating website. It's a website that looks current. It's really interactive and it's a great, great looking site. But best of all, it works. It generates leads. Guys, I have one. I'm generating leads from it. You should too. Don't wait any longer. Go to my website at juststartrealestate.com. Click on the Lead Propeller banner. Go to Lead Propeller and check them out. It's dirt cheap to join. And in fact, the first month is free if you go through my website. So go through my website. Click on the Lead Propeller banner, check it out, get the first month free. It's completely risk-free because after the first month, if you don't think it's what you thought it was going to be or it's not everything that I'm telling you, then cancel and you owe nothing. But guys, I'm going to tell you, you're going to love it. You really should have one up. If you don't have a lead generating website, go there, check it out, get one up today. I know you'll be happy that you did. All right, on to the show. All right, guys, thank you for joining me on today's show. Now, on Mondays, as you know, I normally, I'll have an interview with a great real estate investor or someone who's just inspiring in business, someone who can motivate and inspire and do those kind of things that we need sometimes as investors. You know, sometimes hearing the nuts and bolts of real estate isn't all we need. We need to be in, encouraged and inspired, and that's what I'm going to do for you today. I was recently had, uh, I had a, a video shared with me by my buddy Justin Williams over 
over at House Flipping HQ, and it's it's a video, but it the audio it works very very well. There's not much uh, visual that you need to see. It's it's really more of a video of of uh, of someone doing a speech. So. The visuals aren't that important, but the person doing the speech is very important. His name is Darren Hardy, and Darren has done a, a lot of things. I mean, he is the visionary force behind Success Magazine. If you've heard of Success Magazine, I'm sure you have. He is the publisher and founding editor, and he's also a business leader and has just incredible access to so many wonderful and inspiring and ultra-successful people in the world like Richard Branson, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, Donald Trump, Howard Schultz, Charles Schwab, just to name a few. He has talked with some just incredible people and learned from them, and he mentors a lot of very high-performing CEOs and advises a lot of really large companies and also sits on the board of several companies. He's a he's a keynote speaker and he's just he's he's a very sought after visionary and leader in the business world and he recently did uh, a speech where he was talking about the keys of some of the most high-achieving individuals that you've ever heard of, and he shared the secret to how they are so successful and how they achieve so much. And you know, normally when someone sends me a video or an audio or something like this, oh, you gotta hear it, it's so inspiring, it's so great. To be honest with you, I normally can't get through five or 10 minutes of that because I don't know, I'm just an anxious person. I, I wanna get out there and be doing something. It's hard for me to sit still and listen. So when I say that I sat for an hour and a half and listened to this talk, to this, to this speech that Darren Hardy gave, I listened to every second of it. I was riveted to my chair. I never got up. I never left the room or paused it or anything. I was in just amazed at what he was saying and the wisdom of it and how helpful it was going to be for me and my business. And I loved it so much that I wanted to share it with you guys. So please understand, I'm sharing this with you because I think it's absolutely critical that you hear it. I think it'll make you a better business person, it'll make you a better entrepreneur, and ultimately you will learn how to achieve more with the same time or less than you're spending now. That's incredible, so please, this is a very, very long episode, I understand that, and I apologize for taking up this much of your time, but I think you'll agree when you start listening that this is must-listen material. So listen to it, enjoy it, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So without any further ado, I give you Darren Hardy. smattering of applause. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with uh, the productivity secrets of super achievers. But first off, how many people have, have uh, read this book, Think and Grow Rich? Familiar with it? Okay, yeah. It was written by this guy, Napoleon Hill, and this is what it looked like actually at the time that he met this guy in 1908. He met Andrew Carnegie, who at the time was the wealthiest guy in the world by far. And after this meeting, he really took a liking to young Napoleon. And Andrew Carnegie was at a point in his life where he had achieved everything he really had set his mind to. Now he really wanted to give back and help others. And so he made a deal with uh, young Napoleon. He said, I will fund an expedition if you will go around and meet with the greatest industrialists of our time. I'll open my little black book up and make the appointment. 
If you'll go on and sit with them and try to draw out the ideas, mindsets, the philosophies, the attitudes, the behaviors that have created the extraordinary success for these men and women all over the world. And so thankfully Napoleon took him up on that uh, crusade and imagine what it must have been like for young Napoleon to sit down knee to knee with the likes of Henry Ford or Thomas Edison to try to figure out what is it that these guys do that create their extraordinary success or Alexander Graham Bell. He sat with John D. Rockefeller, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Wrigley, Firestone, and so many more. And then the compilation of their ideas ended up becoming what we now know as today is Think and Grow Rich. And then Napoleon went on to become an editor of Success Magazine. It's a 110-year-old publication, and there's been just an extraordinary lineage. It was started by Orson Sweat Martin in 1891. And at the time, back in the late 1800s, there was 500,000 people subscribing to Success. Orson Sweat Martin is sort of uh, given the attribute of starting the modern-day personal development movement. And then later, back in the 50s and 60s, it was uh, owned and published by W. Clement Stone. Odd Mandina was an editor in Napoleon Hill and then now today, yours truly. And so what's interesting is, is exactly 100 years later from that first meeting with Napoleon and Andrew Carnegie is when we put success back on the newsstand and published it for the first time and restored it back to its personal development, personal achievement roots. And I'm happy to report that we had the largest first issue magazine release in the history of publishing. We beat Oprah, we beat Martha Stewart, we beat Condé Nast, a million copies of the first issue. And today we reach about 3 million people. But what this has done, starting back in March of 2008, is it has given me the same opportunity that young Napoleon had, which was to get knee to knee with the great industrialists, or the great achievers of our time. Nobody has had access and with the specific intent of trying to draw out the best ideas, insights, strategies, mindsets, behaviors of what has caused and created the extraordinary success of today's modern uber achievers like I have. So literally as I stand here before you today, you're not just getting the best insights that I have. You could essentially say that standing shoulder to shoulder with me here is Steve Jobs, is Richard Branson, is Warren Buffett, is Oprah, is Howard Schultz of Starbucks, is Jeff Bezos of Amazon, because all their best ideas, insights, and strategies about how to produce a multitude uh, multiple of your current results with less effort and less stress have been compacted into the next short time that we will spend together here. So I will tell you that this is what we call the productivity secrets of super achievers. Where I really got clear about this is when I met these three dudes right here, Richard Branson, Donald Trump, and Tony Hawk. Because if working long hours was the key to success, if sacrificing nights and weekends, sacrificing your hobby, sacrificing your relationships was the key to success, I would be wealthier than these three guys. Because I know that I work longer hours, sacrifice more nights and weekends, spend less time with friends, family, and hobbies than these guys. I know that I frolic on the beach a lot less than Richard Branson does on his private island. I know that I play a lot less golf than Donald Trump does on his private golf resorts. And I know that I spend a lot less time with my hobbies, my friends, and my family as Tony Hawk does. And these three guys yet are still kicking my butt. 
and it really ticks me off, right? Because we all operate under the same 24-7, 365. And yet these guys are creating a multiplier of results versus mine. And they're doing it with a lot less effort, a lot less stress, and experiencing a lot more joy in life. And so after meeting these three guys, this is when I went on this, this crazy pursuit to try to figure out what truly is the difference between an overachiever, which I've been all my life, versus a superachiever. And an overachiever is one who applies maximum effort all the time and still yields minimum results. Now, it might be more results than everybody else around them, but it is still minimum by comparison to the Herculean effort and stress and overwhelm and overschedule behavior that's going on. So I want to outline the difference between being an overworked, overscheduled, overstressed, overwhelmed, overachiever and being a stunningly successful superachiever that produces a multiplier on your current results with less effort, less stress, in less time. Because there is, in fact, a way, which is how the people that you see on the cover of Success Magazine have done what they've done with the same 365, 24-7. So the question I'm asked, again, is what did these guys and gals do differently than seven billion people on the planet to appear on the cover of Success Magazine. So that's the first point I want to make out, is they have what I call radical focus. Like if there's one attribute that you want to hone, 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 work on, work on, work on, it is this ability to radically focus. Because see, the world looks like this for most people. All these competing agendas, all these solicitations on your time and attention. And you'll notice, that if you look at that, your eyes can't even settle on one of those boxes because of all the competing uh, attention of everything else around it. And that's the way the world looks to most people. And so they're trying to operate, find their way, find their path in this very cluttered, crowded, perplexing environment. So what I want to try to show you how to do here in the next little while is to find the few things that matter the most amongst this myriad of competing agendas. And then once you have found those few things, gray everything else out so that you can, with certainty, with clear path, walk directly towards the direction you want to go, whatever destination that might be, without distraction, without being derailed. And that is understanding how to have radical focus. So that's ultimately what we'll unpack at the end of this. So one of the things that, in being asked, what do these people do differently than everybody else, the reality is it is not what they do at all. In fact, it's the opposite. It's what they don't do that determines the difference between their results and everybody else around them. For instance, the reality is that saying yes is easy. It's easy. There's no restraint. There's no conflict. There's no tension created when you say yes. Yes, I have a minute. Yes, I'll take the call. Yes, I'll go to that meeting. Yes, I'll join you for happy hour. Yes, we can go to dinner with that couple, right? You know, yes is easy. There's no conflict. However, the master skill of success is in fact no. No is the master skill. 
but it takes courage. It takes clarity. It takes an understanding of what you are focused on so that you know when it doesn't show up so that you do, in fact, hold your ground and say no. Now, I got really clear about that when I met this guy right here, Warren Buffett. So I finally get a chance to meet with the Oracle of Omaha. So I ask him what I think is the all-important question. You're worth $50 billion, considered one of the wisest investors in the history of humanity. If you were to boil down your key to success in one principle, what would it be? And I'm expecting to get like a financial economic lesson and so forth. This was his answer. This answer is worth $50 billion because it comes from the man who came from the same place we all came from, but this discipline accumulated that kind of wealth. He said, for every 100 great opportunities that are brought to me, I say no 99 times. That's what he attributes his great wealth and success to, is saying no 99 out of 100 times. And that's just not no, I won't buy your company, no, I won't invest in that stock or that commodity or whatever. It's no on any solicitation on his time or his attention. No to interviews, no to meetings, no to calls, no to engagements, the rest of it. 99 out of 100 times. Isn't that interesting? Here's another great achiever of our modern era. Of course, you know, the great late Steve Jobs. So I'm with him backstage at an event where he's going to be speaking at, and I get some private time with him. So I ask him what I think is a great question, right? Of all the things that you and Apple have built, I mean, revolutionary breakthrough products, what is the one you're most proud of? What do you think it is? Of all the things in his whole career, what was his answer to, what is the thing that he's most proud of? Well, let me give it to you. He said, I am as proud of what we don't do as I am of what we do. And he went on to say, deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do. It's true for companies, and it's true for people. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is Mark Parker, the uh, CEO of Nike. And when he first took over the chair of CEO of Nike, he had a conversation with Steve Jobs on the phone. And there was an interesting exchange about some advice that Steve ultimately gave Mark Parker. And I think there's some insight for us all. Let me play that interview. When we were having dinner, that when you first got the, the job as CEO, you got a call from Steve Jobs and he offered you some advice? <laughs> well, he didn't call to offer me advice, but uh, so we had worked together on uh, a Nike Apple collaboration called Nike Plus. So we took what Apple knows, what Nike knows, and you know, brought a new technology to the market. Anyway, long story short, uh, he said, Hey, congratulations, it's great, you're going to do a great job. Uh, I said, well, do you have any advice? And he said, no, no, you're, you're, you're great. And then there was a pause, and he goes, well, I do have some advice. He goes, Nike makes some of the best product in the world. I mean, product that you lust after, absolutely beautiful, stunning product. But you also make a lot of crap. He said, just get rid of the crappy stuff and focus on the good stuff. And then I expected a little pause and a laugh, but there was, there was a pause but no laugh at the end. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. And in fact, that's one of, been, one of my major uh, focal points in terms of my priorities as a, as a CEO, and, and even as a designer when I was growing up at the company, is to edit. I mean, we have so many ideas. Nike is an idea factory. My priority as a CEO, or as a designer, or as a person operating in the world, is to edit. So here's an important question. 
What crappy stuff do you need to stop doing so that you can focus on the good stuff? Because see, the reality is of getting more done, it's not about actually doing more. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It is stop doing the things that don't matter so that you can clear the pathway of doing the things that do, and then you can start doing them at a much higher level. So Kenneth Cole, I think, put it uh, in one sentence that I thought was great. He said, success has less to do with what we can get ourselves to do. Isn't that interesting? Here we are, we're trying to get ourselves to do things. And he says, success has less to do with what we can get ourselves to do, and more to do with keeping ourselves from doing what we shouldn't. Or as Peter Drucker said, there's nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. And most of us spend great portions of our day trying to get better and do efficiently things that we shouldn't even be doing at all. So I want you to consider this, to make it practical, okay? To make sure that you're translating this into your own life and results. Look at your calendar last week when you get home and then consider what should you have said no to? Now here's the first thing I want you to realize when you look at your calendar last week. How few appointments you actually had on the calendar, but yet you walked into the office and were busy all day long without even doing things that are important enough for you to even put on your calendar. You are just being pulled in a thousand different directions, reacting and responding to other people's agenda all day long. So the first thing is, is what should you have said no to? And then look at your calendar next week and ask yourself, what should I say no to now? If I had to say no to 99 out of 100 things, which of those do I need to start saying no to? Then look at your idea list, look at your prospect list, look at your commitment list, your communication list, and start asking yourself, what should I say no to? You have got to weed out. You've got to go lean. You have got to clear the field for your mind, for your energy, your life force, and your focus in order to dig a well that ultimately is going to sprout great wealth for you. So by the way, same phone number. I, I put both of these on the same system so that you can get a copy of all these slides. I, again, I bring this up because I want you to focus on the key points, the things that strike you, write it down, knowing that you're gonna get the support of all of this and you'll be able to hear this again as well. Um, and so I'll provide you those resources. So you might be asking yourself the question, okay, so what do you do then? You can't just go around saying no all day long and you know, just saying no. Eventually, you have to end up doing something. So what do you do then? Okay, great question. Here's the reality. It's not doing many things. And that's the thing that most, particularly those driven, ambitious achievers, they're trying to do many things at all times, spinning lots of plates. No, no, no. These uber achievers do not do many things. They do fewer things than each of you in this room. I promise you. So here's the deal. Super achievers learn to focus on what's called the vital few. From this matrix of competing solicitations on their time, they find and then focus and then leverage the vital few. See, it's better to be world-class at a few things than mediocre at many. And what happens is, is most people go around trying to be good at everything and then become mediocre at most things and never world-class at anything. For instance, look at the faces of these people on the screen here. 
Each of these people became world-class in their profession, but they're only world-class at probably one or maybe two things. And if you read the biography of most of these people, the rest of their life was rather mediocre, if not in some cases, poor. But they became world-class in one or two things, and now the history book recognizes them forever. And they were extraordinary achievers. They were Nobel Prize winners. They were celebrated athletes or entertainers, or they are people who truly did dent the universe and push the human race further because they became world-class at a few things. So the question is, is what are you going to become world-class at? What are you going to be known for by your world-class standard and achievement? What's the one or two things? Because if you try to do a bunch of things, you'll never be world-class at anything. So I wrote an article not too long ago that was titled, Why Most Super Achievers Suck at Golf. And it was because I, was, I, I host a, a CEO forum, 24 CEOs. Jerry's going to come to it. Uh, an extraordinary experience. And then I do this elite program where graduates of that come and we do a full day weekend. And um, so a, a few of them flew in early before this event. And it's at the Grand Del Mar, a spectacular golf course. And they wanted me to come and join them for golf. And so first tee, I tee off. And I said, gentlemen, I dropped the club. Let me just explain something here. Let me explain why super achievers suck at golf, okay? And quite frankly, why I suck at a lot of things in life. You have to figure out what are you willing to give up in order to get what you really want. See, I've given up knowing what the, the popular sitcoms are on television. I've given up following the, the sports statistics of the local you know, football and baseball team. I've given up following the political crisis thing that's going on in Washington, D.C. I've also given up being a great gardener or being a great cook or being a great tennis player or being a great golfer, right? Or a lot of other things in life so that I can become world-class at a few things. And that's the major difference is a lot of people run around trying to be good at a lot of things, ultimately mediocre at many, and never world-class at anything. So a question for you is, if you're going to be world-class at anything, the first question you have to ask is, what are you going to give up to get what you want? And maybe it is, you know, your final episodes of Breaking Bad or American Idol, right? Or, you know, maybe it is following the political you know, crud that's going on there. You, just, you have to give up certain things to get what you ultimately want. Identify those two. And so here's another distinction. So I had this, this epiphany after coming from a meeting with uh, Richard Branson, and I said, this, okay, here's, here's a big distinction. The definition of productivity is this, solving problems and getting things done. Okay? That's how it's described. But here's what's interesting then. The size of your life will be determined by the size of the problems that you solve. So let me give you some interesting distinctions here. So this guy sells houses, and he does pretty well. He sells real estate, so he's in the real estate business, your neighborhood realtor. 
This guy sells real estate too. In the same industry. But this guy chooses to just focus on bigger problems. Bigger problems. And yet, and as a result, the results and the rewards are just as big. I recorded this after a conversation we had here. Let me just play you a little snippet from this guy here. They want to do one little house. Then I see people that want to do 10 houses. And I see people want to do thousands of houses. But the fact is, if you're going to think and if you're going to be doing something, do it big. In a certain way, it's better with the banks. In a certain way, it's better with buyers. You can make it more dramatic. Same business, just tackling a bigger problem. Here's another one. This guy's in the transportation business. So is this guy. You could take your 24-7, 365 and run a really great bike shop or take your 27, 365 and run an airline. Same time, energy and effort, bigger problem, bigger results. Or take a look at this guy. He runs a great local coffee shop. Fantastic, wonderful. Family stressed out with it, you know, the whole bit, you know, all the obligations of the bills and the employees and the rest of this. This guy runs a coffee shop as well. Just happens to be thousands of them across the country. Just tackled a bigger problem, thus the results in his life are different. This guy built an electric car. Fantastic, proud, you know, fan wonderful. Good, good, good for him. This guy built an electric car. Became Tesla Motors. This guy's also in the travel business. He could help you go to the Ozarks or he could help you go to the moon. Bigger problem, same industry, same time. This entrepreneur runs a website where you can buy a multitude of different merchandise on it. This guy runs a website as well. And because he attacked a bigger problem, he has a different size of life. So I just ask you to consider that. It's like same time, energy, and effort applied to a bigger problem yields multiples of results. Oh, here's a guy, here's a plumber. Fixing your pipes, you know, gets paid 50 bucks an hour. Here's a guy who's a plumber. Fixing your pipes, just happens to be heart surgery, bigger problem, bigger reward, right? So the thing is, day to day, you are choosing the size of problem to spend time on, and it's creating the size of your results. So you could spend time trying to figure out how to increase the number of comments on your Facebook post, you know, or how to tweak, you know, the icons on your screen and solve that problem. And your life results will equal the size of the problem that you are addressing each day. Or you could just solve a bigger problem, see a different result in your life. So I think it's a fascinating distinction. Same time, same energy. So what I want to do is to outline how to understand your vital signs of strategic productivity so that you can find your radical focus, become world class, and then get a multiplier of results with less effort and less stress. So we're going to cover your vital few functions, your vital few priorities, your vital few metrics, and your vital few improvements. And this will end up essentially becoming your execution plan for achieving anything you've ever wanted. Here's how it works. Let's start with vital functions. There are not 5,000 things that you need to become great at in order to become the master of your industry. There appears to be, but there are not 5,000. It always comes down to about a half dozen. What's interesting is excellence in any endeavor always comes down to about a half dozen. So, I mean, you could take anything. Football comes down to about a half dozen fundamentals. Basketball, half dozen fundamentals. Golf, half dozen fundamentals. Marriage. Parenting, leadership, sales, half dozen fundamentals. One of my brother-in-laws is a rocket scientist, works for Raytheon. 
we're having this discussion. He says, you know what's funny? Rocket science comes down to about a half dozen fundamentals. Everything in life comes down to about that. The key is finding the half dozen fundamentals and then mastering them. And I'll show you a couple of masters here. We all know that the legendary results of the Green Bay Packers under Vince Lombardi was his steadfast focus at being brilliant at the basics, right? They would just win the world championship. And the championship team's coming back for a new season, first day of practice. He would hold out a pigskin and say, see this gentleman? This is a football. I don't care that you're world champions. I don't care that you think that you're great, you had a great season. We are starting right back down with the basics, and this is a football, right? He would say, the key to winning is to become brilliant at the basics. So much so that the opposing team would know exactly what play was coming and still couldn't stop it. That's how brilliant they became at the basics. Another legendary coach, John Wooden, 10 NCAA championships in 12 years. A record that probably will never be broke ever again. I mean, extraordinary achievement as a coach. So they would just win the NCAA championship, first day of practice of a new year. He would have an hour and a half seminar on how to put on your socks and tie your shoes. Then you'd take them off and you'd re-unwrinkle it. And then he'd show you how to put them on over your toes and then get it up to your ankle and then put the rest of it on and then pull it up and then smooth it out, smooth it out, put it on, make sure that the laces, you know, aren't twisted. And they would do that on and off, on and off for an hour and a half to make two points. Number one is, I don't care that you think you're NCAA champions, we are going right back down to the basics. And the basics start with when you put your socks and shoes on. And the other point he would make is, look, I don't care how talented you are, you're out there on the court and you get a blister, you will get beat. Comes right back down to the basics. So this is Dr. Oz, an amazing guy. I mean, truly amazing. So now this dude has a five-day, one-hour Emmy Award-winning TV show on every week. He still performs over 200 open-heart surgeries a year. He has a whole series of best-selling books. He's on the cover of every magazine known to man. He's got two thriving foundations that he pours a lot of time and love into. And so when I meet with him, I say, I say man, how, how are you doing all this? How? I mean, I've I'm, I'm, got a fraction of what you've got going on, and I'm just overwhelmed with it. How do you do this? And he says, look, it all comes down to finding your vital few functions. He says, take open-heart surgery. I mean, there's, a, there's thousands of little things that have to happen. He says, but I don't like clean the room or clean the utensils or even open up the body cavity. He says, there are dozens and dozens of procedures that take place before I even enter the room. And then at the time that I enter, there are two or three functions that I have to perform. And these functions make all the difference in the world. And I have to be prepared and ready to be world-class at those few functions. I perform those functions and then I leave. He said, it's just like a TV show. He's like, I don't go and do the lights and all the rest of it. He says, there's two or three functions that I have to be prepared and ready. And I go, deliver, and then leave. Writing a book, running an organization, leading a nonprofit. There are always just a few vital functions. Figure out what those are and become excellent at those 
and you can perform all these tasks with great ease. Brilliant. When I was in real estate, I'll give you for instance, um, in real estate, there are 5,000 things that you could mistake as being productive, right? I mean, I'll just, some of these you'll, you'll be familiar with, right? Set up the termite inspection, review the appraisal, get the permit, permit report from the city, meet with the selling agent, check on the septic tank history, review the utility bills, you know, show, show property, go to a buyer list. I mean, all these things are what realtors run around and do all day. But I figured out very early that there are only really three things that only I can do that I can't delegate to anybody else. Because when I do them, we move the needle, we make money. This is where it pay, this is where the talent is needed. And that was pitching a listing, negotiating a contract, and prospecting. Those are my three vital functions. So I became so focused on trying to isolate my time to just doing these three things that I actually bought a stopwatch and I hung it around my neck. And I tracked the amount of time that I was doing any one of these three functions. So the first time I did this, I wanted to set the bar really high. And so, I mean, I just put in like a crushing day, like 14, 16 hours. And I wouldn't let myself look at the watch all day long. So I would walk up a driveway, knock, 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 door opens, turn it on, talk, 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 door closes, turn it off. Down the driveway, up the next driveway, knock, 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 open, on, close, off. Go home, prospect, ring, 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 phone answers, on, talk, 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 phone down, off. And so I just, like a savage that day. And so I was excited at the end of the day to find out how much time I had clocked on the stopwatch. Guess how much time? Three hours, two hours? One hour. 19 minutes and 54 seconds. If you'd asked anybody in my office whether I was productive all day, they'd be like, oh yeah, that guy's crazy. He's all, yeah, he works like a savage. But I'd only spent 19 minutes and 54 seconds doing anything that mattered. Trust me, if you figure out what your vital few functions are and then you track the amount of time that you're actually spending doing any one of those vital functions, you will be sh shocked how little time you're actually doing anything that matters. So I became just like obsessed of like, okay, I gotta get this number up. So from 20 minutes to 40 minutes seemed like a Herculean effort. The first time I got it up over an hour, I threw an office-wide party. <laughs> Two hours. I think I got it up to four hours in my four-year real estate career, maybe a dozen times, which meant that in four years, I worked a half day a dozen times. And that's essentially how it ends up working out. I encourage you, just try it. Just track, seriously, time, the amount of time that you're doing anything that truly matters. And, and then go about increasing that number and you'd be shocked about how much you can get done and how little amount of time. So how do you only do the vital few? Because you're probably thinking, well, you know, all these other things do have to get done. So how can you just isolate your time to doing those vital few? Hey, that's a great question. Let me answer First thing you need to do is get clear about your value, how much your time is worth. Because with this new perspective, I think you will treat your time differently as well. So it works out as, simply as, uh, as simple as this. Take the income goal you've got and divide it by 2,000. Those are the number of hours that we spend on average working in a year. So it looks like this. If you want to make $100,000 a year, your time is worth $50 an hour. You have to produce $50 in value every hour to make $100,000 a year. 
If your goal is $250,000 an hour, your time has to be worth $125 an hour. See, you go down a rabbit hole of 20 minutes watching YouTube videos or commenting on Facebook during the middle of the day, you literally have to take $20, two $20 bills out of your wallet and light them on fire. You have just lost that amount of time. It's kind of like this. Imagine on January 1st, you woke up and there's $250,000 deposited into your bank account. And you can keep it if every hour that you work, you do $125 an hour work. And any hour that you don't, take a little extra long lunch, come to the office a little late, get stuck in a hallway conversation, go to a meaningless or useless meeting, that has to come right up off the top, off the top, off the top. So what happens is people get to the end of the year and they go, ha, huh, 80,000. I set a goal for 250,000. Work like a dog all year long and I end up with 80,000. How did that happen? Every hour that you did do $125 an hour work came up off the top until it dwindled down to 80 grand. It's as simple as that. It's not that difficult of an equation. But what people don't realize is that your time costs you money. It is actual money. If you want to make a million dollars a year, your time has to be $500 an hour. I get people coming up to me all the time. It's like, I just need 10 minutes of your time. And I say, great, send me 500 bucks. Because that's exactly what my time cost me. And if I don't get $500 of value in that 10 minutes, it costs me the achievement of my goal. See, when you understand, you have that clarity, you go, okay, I need to stop doing what it is that I'm doing right now because it is not going to yield me the hourly rate that I need to accomplish the goal that I have set. And here's the deal. A lot of you are self-employed in your own businesses, and the reason why you are is because you didn't want to have a boss. You didn't want to have anybody telling you what to do. But here's the reality. You have a boss, just a really crappy one. <laughs> one that's letting you get away with murder, letting you be lazy, letting you be unaccountable, letting you burn time, and all the rest of this. And so the first thing you might need to do is start bossing yourself around a little bit more. Ask yourself the question, you're in the middle of doing something. Ask yourself, would I pay somebody, if your goal is $250,000 a year, would I pay somebody $125 an hour to do this for me right now? And if the answer is no, $125, no, stop doing it. Because it's costing you that much money. The great thing about it is you could hire somebody for 40 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, hey, be, be generous, $80 an hour, and you immediately keep the arbitrage. You immediately keep the delta. You immediately make money by having somebody else do that task. You keep the difference. If you go and then, while they do this, you do $125 an hour work. And so, delegate everything anyone else can do at a lower rate. Free up every minute possible for you to do your vital functions. Now, some of you who are employed by our esteemed boss here, this is the discussion you have. You say, what do you think are my vital functions? To produce the result that we want here as an organization, what do you think are, are my vital functions? And once those are identified, so then it's okay that 
A lot of this should not get in the way of doing this as much as possible. Because what's happening is the, 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 the boss or the employer wants the same result. They want focus. They want you to go deep with the most important things that your job role and responsibility is the contribution to the team. The problem is, is everybody's time and attention is being fractured, spending major time on minor activities. This lack of focus or lack of clarity is what's destroying the productivity potential inside of organizations. So this is Ken Fisher. He's a billionaire. He's on the Forbes 400. And he wrote this book. And I remember um, asking him the question, you know, it's like, okay, how does somebody ascend from the bottom to the top? And he says, hey, look, when you first start any endeavor, you probably will have to do it all. Like, let's say you're starting a new business, okay? You probably will have to do it all. You have to do sales and marketing. You have to do customer service. You have to do the accounting. And you'll have to take out the trash. He says, but your job is to become a quitter. Get enough sales and marketing going to where eventually you have some extra money. You can stop taking out the trash. Hire somebody else to do that. Get more sales and marketing going. Stop doing the accounting. Get a little more sales and marketing going. Stop doing the customer service. Get the sales and marketing going. Stop doing the sales and marketing. Your job ultimately is to weed yourself out of a job entirely. On your org chart, nobody reports to you. There's no accountability to you whatsoever except for finding great talent, cultivating a fantastic culture, and thinking about the strategic direction of an organization. But that's where you end up. At the beginning, you will have to do most everything, but the job is to start quitting as fast as possible, all the way up until you're not doing any of it any longer. Ultimately, you want to move from labor, doing it, to leadership. That's the distinction. It all still has to get done. But it doesn't have to require your time, energy, and talent, the talent that's running the enterprise, the one that should be spending time thinking about the strategic direction of the organization, going out and finding and cultivating A-level talent and putting them into the culture and setting them free. The rest, you want to move to, from labor to leadership. Everything you do is keeping you from doing what you should be doing. So what's better than a few? If you isolate all your time and attention down to a few, what's even better than a few? Yeah, one. What if you found the one thing that you do that contributes most to the enterprise or to your organization? So I'll give you a for instance. So I spent some time with Joel Osteen. As a matter of fact, he's the second time appearing on the cover of Success Now. First time I spent time with he and his wife in his, in his um, home in Houston. And to me, Joel is not a Christian evangelist. To me, he is the CEO of a several hundred million dollar enterprise, right? And so I asked him, I said, how, do you, how, do you do, how did you do this? How did you grow this? How do you manage it all? How do you keep it all in sync? And he said, you know, when I first took over from my father, he says, I was trying to do it all. And I was doing weddings and baptisms and funerals, and I was editing the brochures, and I was editing the, the commercials between the, you know, the bumpers around the TV program. I was adjusting the lights on the stage. He says, I was doing it all. And our organization came to a standstill. It couldn't grow any further than my calendar can handle. So, and it was killing me, and it was stagnating the organization. He said, so I had to step back and say, okay, what's the one thing that I do that contributes the most to the success of this enterprise? And he said, you know, I figured out it was that 22 minutes on Sunday. 
that 22 minutes, if that 22 minutes was inspiring, was hopeful, was excellent, it drove the entire enterprise. Everything else was a, was a success behind it. He said, so I stopped doing everything else. And I just focused in on that 22 minutes once a week. And he only has to do it 22 times throughout a year, right? So here's his actual calendar through a week. Wednesday, he spends the whole day just thinking, making notes about what it is that he wants to talk about on Sunday, the whole day. Thursday, he writes it out word for word. Friday, he spends the whole day doing nothing but memorizing it, drilling and memorizing it. The whole day, no interruptions, no distractions, no calls, no meetings. The whole day. Saturday, he delivers it twice with the cameras off to his internal congregation. And then Sunday, lights, action, camera, bam. And he's magic. I mean, it's like I call him the best keynote speaker of our modern era because the guy's got to do 22 brand new keynotes a year. And he does it without notes, and it's hopeful, and it's inspiring, and stories, and analogies, and the rest of it. Because he figured out his one thing. And as a result of it, he could be extraordinary at that one thing. He takes Monday off, and then Tuesday he does his leadership, where he meets with his team, takes a look at his vital metrics, does any press. I've interviewed him twice now, and it always had to be on Tuesday, because that was the day he did anything else except for work on his Sunday sermon. Think of the power of that. Now let me give you another. So here's the goal. To do fewer things. More often. And get better at them. Now here's the deal. You're going to look at that and go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, it's cool. This is it. This is it. So I had this interesting experience. A friend of mine, his father had turned 100 years old. So a centenarian, right? And I said, I, I, wanna, I wanna meet and, and interview your father. I said, would you ask him to write down what he thought was the greatest contribution to his success? Because the guy was very wealthy, very well respected, an amazing individual. So I write down everything that he thought mattered to become successful, that he could leave behind. So I show up and I'm expecting to get this like 30 to 50 page tome and he hands me a single piece of paper. And it's got like 12 things on it. And he says, that's it. This is it. Every single word on there is crucial. It's vital, but that's it. And he says, look, you can hand this piece of paper to an 18-year-old, and it's not going to mean anything to him. They have to take the trip themselves to understand how vital and essential every single word is. So I'm, I'm pausing here for a moment to tell you, that's it. Like, don't let this pass. Don't let me go to the next slide without saying, that's it. How does Richard Branson do it? How did Steve Jobs do it? How does Warren Buffett do it? How do any of these uber achievers do it? That's the formula. Do fewer things more often and get better at them. So hopefully the amplification of this point said, okay, I don't know entirely whether this is all the, the mystery solved, but I'm just going to believe you. I'm just going to take heed and focus on these three things because really that's it. All right. Vital few priorities. Let's go to priorities now, okay? We know where our vital functions are. We become world-class in them, do a few of them, and become better at them. Vital few priorities. So here's what it's like. How is it that a, a vulnerable human being can tame a powerful, strong, vicious lion with a simple bar stool? How is that possible? 
Because this lion could tear the human limb from limb, but a bar stool will keep it at bay, will tame the lion. The reason is the lion sees the four legs of the bar stool as four threats and feels overwhelmed by the threats and thus becomes docile and tamed. Same thing happens in our lives. It's called the lion syndrome. When we have too many choices, it creates paralysis. When you have too many priorities, you become like a deer in a headlight. You don't move on any of them. It creates paralysis. You become docile. You become tamed. Here's an uber achiever of our society, Richard Branson. We had him on the cover of Success. And then we had a client ask, hey, we want to hire Richard Branson to speak at our conference. Now that you have this relationship with him, would you please call him and ask him? We'll pay him 100 grand to speak at our conference for an hour. Well, we don't like using our relationships like that, but this client was responsible for about 60,000 subscriptions to success. So a really important client, which says, okay, this one time, but please don't ask us to do this again. So we call Richard Branson's office, hey, this company wants to hire you to speak. You're gonna pay $100,000 for an hour. Sir Richard flatly declined. So we tell him that, he said no. He says, well, tell him we'll pay him $250,000. Please call him back, ah, God, so call him back. $250,000 for an hour, Sir Richard declines. Now this is becoming kind of an ego issue for him, right? So they go, okay, $500,000, we're gonna send a private plane, we're gonna pick him up, we're gonna take him to our conference facility. As soon as his foot hits the pavement, we'll have him back on the plane in under an hour, pay him a half a million dollars. Call Richard, flatly declines. And then they said, just give us a number. Just, just give us a number, whatever it takes. Just tell us the number call Richard's office back, and the answer was this. Richard is focused on three strategic priorities right now, and he will only allow us to allocate his calendar to something that significantly contributes to the achievement of one of those three strategic priorities, and speaking for a fee at any price is not one of them. I thought, wow, <laughs> that's focus. So I remember telling a friend of mine this, yeah, Richard Branson just turned out a half a million dollars to speak at somebody's company for an hour. And he's like, of course, you know, he's worth $4 billion. Of course, he can turn down a half a million dollars. I can never turn down a half a million dollars. And then I thought, yeah, that's why you're not Richard Branson. Because he started out just like the rest of us. Middle-class family, dyslexia, student rag magazine that failed. And he didn't just arrive at this focus. It was because of this focus all along the way that he ends up with 400 companies and worth $4 billion. So same thing for you is, what are your three strategic priorities and how strong are you willing to be about saying no to any other shiny object, no matter how tantalizing it might be to stay the course on your three priorities? I have another CEO friend of mine was a very successful company and got tired of his company becoming so derailed and infatuated with the latest idea every day, every week. And so now, if anybody walks into his office with a new idea, he says, what the focus are you talking about? <laughs> Just stay the course. Somebody sends him an idea over email, what the focus are you talking about? We have our strategic plan, we know our priorities, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. Jim Collins put it this way, he said, if you have more than three priorities, you don't have any. And so figure out what are the three most important priorities 
period. Let me give you the Buffett method, okay? If, if you have the courage to do the Buffett method, here it is. Simple as this. So this is what he does. He says, write out all your priorities. Make a long list of all the priorities that you've got in your whole organization. Write out all the priorities, okay? Everybody can do that. Number two, now narrow it down to your top three. Okay, everybody can do that. Now this is the difference between making a half a million dollars a year and being worth 50 billion. Number three. Here's where it takes courage. Throw away the rest of the list. Don't just keep them over here on the side. Well, if I get to those, oh, those are still attractive. Those are still really good ideas. Let's just put a, let's just, we can just do a little bit of time. You know, a little extra spare, well, you know, well, maybe four. I mean, I, let's do four, five maybe, right? No, find the three, throw away the rest of the list. That's when it takes courage to stay the course. So what's better than a few? If you isolate yourself down to a few priorities, what's better than a few? You get in the hang of this. One, exactly. So let me give you the guy that became brilliant at the one. The late Steve Jobs learned this when he took over Pixar. And he saw how an entire creative team that was focused on only producing one blockbuster movie. So the whole staff and team was focused on just one movie. And because they were only focused on one movie, Toy Story at the time, it became a breakthrough in animation. Done things that no other studio has ever done because of the collaboration focus of just the one thing. So when he took back over Apple, he brought this discipline back into Apple. And if you remember, when he took it over, he cleared the clutter four quadrants says we're only going to do one new breakthrough product at a time. And so they launched the iPod. It was the only new product at the time. The whole organization just focusing on the iPod, then pushed the bounds and it became a breakthrough product. Now I always had these little rogue groups going, but they were in lockdown. You, if you were an Apple employee, you couldn't even go to these other parts of the company. Did not want the mindset being fractured to the whole of the company that was just focused on making the iPod extraordinary. And then after the iPod, it was nothing but the iPhone. Then after the iPhone, focus on the iPad. After the iPad, retail. And that was just one major uh, priority at a, at a time, which is the reason why each one of them became breakthroughs in their own right with a collaboration and focus on the one. Him individually. Now here's, here's a guy that was running $2 billion companies. What are the demands of somebody running a billion dollar company? Investors, employees, HR, legal, liability problems, marketing challenges, all the rest is PR, all that being pulled on your calendar. But Steve became so focused on the one thing that he would spend three hours every day focused on the number one priority of the organization. Whatever that was, three hours carved off on his calendar to do nothing but focus on that one thing. That is why breakthroughs were made. But here's a great challenge of our time about staying focused. Here's what we all have to deal with and are under attack with. The information overload that is surrounding us all day every day. And then the constant solicitations on our time and attention all day every day from blog posts to Facebook comments, to RSS feeds, to tweets, to mobile alerts, to text messages, to emails, constantly fracturing our time and attention. And we love it. We're addicted to distraction. Here's why. Number one, it provides us a form of relief. When we're focused on the one thing and it becomes hard and difficult to stay concentrated, and then there's a knock at the door, 
or there's a text, you're actually relieved. It's a justifiable excuse for you to be distracted from what it is that you really should have been doing. Number two is we have this insatiable thirst for novelty. We're always looking over somebody else's shoulder to see if there's somebody more important, or there's something new, or something, something fresh, something different over the horizon. And then lastly is we want to be wanted. Every time we get a text message, inside we go, oh, somebody wants me. We get an email, oh, who loves me now? Right, and we just, we just go around with this whole thing. You know, we put a Facebook post up there and we watch it, we're like, oh, I got a like, I got a like. I'm like, it, it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. We've all turned into, you know, schoolyard children about wanting to be wanted. And the consequences are we're overstimulated, overwound, unproductive, and unfulfilled. And on average, we are distracted how often? How often do you think we're distracted throughout the day? Every three minutes. And it takes 11 minutes to regain concentration. Now, I'm no math whiz, but you can see a problem with that, right? If it takes 11 minutes to regain concentration and you're distracted every three, you can see how most of us are never actually concentrating. We never enter a state of focus. What it's like is uh, REM sleep. So you know that it's not the amount of time you spend in bed that determines the quality of your sleep. It's the amount of time that you spend in REM. I mean, ask a, a new mother. They could, they could be in bed, in and out of bed for 10 hours. But if they keep getting woken up by a crying baby, they'll wake up exhausted, right? A barking dog throughout the night, a branch beating at the side of your house that constantly pulls you from REM sleep. It's not the amount of time you spend in bed. It's the amount of time that you spend in REM. It's not the amount of time you spend at the office. It's the amount of time you spend in focus. So you could spend a lot less time in bed and wake up refreshed. You could spend a lot less time at the office and be supremely productive. Because it's not the time, it's the amount of time in REM or in focus or in concentration. You want to move from reacting. And what happens all day throughout the day is that you're just reacting to everybody else's agenda. Reacting to an email, reacting to a text, reacting to a knock at the door, reacting. That's why you walk into the office with nothing on your calendar and get strung out all day long because you're doing nothing but reacting to everybody else's agenda. So you want to move from reacting to creating. What are you trying to create? What are your priorities? Where's your focus? And then Shield yourself from everybody else's agenda so that you can create instead of react. And here's another major vortex in people's lives throughout the workday and throughout their personal life as well. 28% of productive focus is wasted on multitasking. First thing you need to know is there's no such thing as multitasking. You actually cognitively cannot multitask. All you do is switch. You can't run two cognitive processes at the same time. You actually cannot be on a conference call and read email at the same time. All you are doing is going between them. So you're reading your email, not listening to the call. Then all of a sudden you hear something on the call, you're listening to the call, not reading email. And then you're switching back and forth. So you're not multitasking, you're doing what's called switching. And here's the deal. Switching makes you dumber than being stoned, <laughs> according to CNN. When you are stoned, your IQ goes down by five points. 
When you're switching between two tasks, your IQ goes down by 10. So most people are walking through their day totally baked out of their head <laughs> and wondering why they're getting low yield results that are ineffective and inefficient. And when a muscle goes unused, like concentration and focus, it creates atrophy. Just like if you've ever broken your arm and it had to be in a sling for a month or two, and then all of a sudden you took the sling off and your arm was all skinny. Because what you don't use, you lose. Same thing with concentration and attention. And most people have actually lost the ability to concentrate and be focused. Curious, the first stage of change is acknowledgement. If you were to say which of these forms of distraction are the most, you're probably subject to all of these, but are the most distracting for you? Email, phone calls, news updates, office drop-ins, or self-induced multitasking. How many people would say email? Okay, yes, me, that's mine. Phone calls or texts? Okay, a few of you. Uh, news updates, we have any politicos in here? How about office drop-ins? Okay, self-induced multitasking. Yeah, it was funny. That's always the number one answer. And what's interesting in this very distracting world that we live in, the number one answer is the one that you're actually doing to yourself. I mean, you can't even blame the knock at the door or the emails or the texts or the, or the RSS feeds. You're doing it to yourself. So don't mistake movement for achievement, activity for productivity, and rushing around for results. Because you could spend the whole day rushing around, and then if we quantify the results, it's not much. So let me give you some strategies for high performance. Some things that you can apply. You can go back to the office, start applying this right now, and it will multiply your outcomes. So here's a strategy to immediately triple your productivity and results. Now, it sounds like a big claim, but this is no hyperbole. Triple your productivity and results. Here's how I know that we can do that. There's a recent study involving Fortune 500 CEOs. And they went and surveyed and observed how much time the average CEO spends on productive activities. So these are the top of our totem pole, the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. They got the resources, the staff to delegate and the rest of this. How much time do you think the average Fortune 500 CEO spends on productive tasks? Any guesses? 90 minutes. 90 minutes. They might put 10, 12, 12 hours at the office, but 90 minutes. Now, when Jack Welch heard this, he said, nah, I doubt it's that much. <laughs> they did the survey and observation again two years later, and this was two years ago now. And the new number was 28 minutes. And these CEOs also were observed spending more time, actual time at the office, but spending less time on anything productive. Isn't that interesting? Focus is a skill. Every bit of foundation of success is reading and writing. If you can learn to control your attention, you can finally control your life. And it develops like a muscle. You have to put it under intense pressure and stress and then rest and recover. Intense stress, rest and recover. And that's how you rebuild the muscle of concentration. So let me give you the sprint and recover method. 
Okay, this is what are called productivity intervals. If you want to study the elite performers in our society, the ones that go on to become Olympic athletes or violin virtuosos or concert pianists, this is their strategy, productivity intervals. So let me show you this. So first off is sprint. This is concentrated focus, undisturbed concentrated focus, sprint. So here's how you do this. You create what are called 90-minute jam sessions. For 90 minutes, isolated, focused attention, first thing you have to do is create a bubble of silence so that you are undistracted for 90 minutes. That means you have to turn off your cell phone, turn off your computer, put a sign at the door in a jam session, do not disturb, will reappear at this particular time. Everything that can distract you has to be silenced because even just pulling you out for a moment will break your REM sleep, break your productive REM and it'll take 11 minutes to get back in. It can destroy the output. So you have to create, number one, a bubble of silence. Number two is have a countdown clock. I bought this little doohickey at Amazon, like 10, 15 bucks. And I put it on my desk, so I said, okay, it's time for a jam session. Close the door, turn everything off, glass of water, no getting up to go pee, 90 minutes. Then I take this little clock and I put it on. Now the first time you do this, this is what your experience will be like. You'll put it on and be like, okay, this is a project I've been wanting to get to, great. I'm, 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 you're working, working, working. You're, you're, you look up and you're like, 78 minutes left, right? You work a little harder, work a little harder, and you're like, ha, ha, ha. I'm like, I'm really, really making progress. 67 minutes left. You'll realize quickly how much you've lost the ability to stay focused on one thing to concentrate. And if you persevere, you push through, at the end of the first session, you'll be like, wow, look at the progress that I made here. And you'll become addicted to this process, like the outcomes, the creative output, the deep wellspring of creativity that you can tap when you go into these 90-minute cycles of focused jam sessions is extraordinary. And literally, you can, in 90 minutes, triple the productivity of the average Fortune 500 CEO by just doing a single jam session. My goal is to always do two or three, but at least one triples the productivity of the average Fortune 500 CEO. But then you have to recover. Recovery is just as essential. Interesting thing, that I'm not gonna drag you through that. Here's the problem. The problem is the absence of disciplined and intermittent recovery. For most of you in the room, you're achievers. You wouldn't, be, you wouldn't have said yes to this invitation. You're achievers, okay? You guys are, you, when you're motivated. Nobody has to tell you to work long, hard hours. Nobody has to tell you that. As a matter of fact, everybody's gotta tell you to stop. And that's true of this recovery. Most of you will, be, will have more difficult time with the understanding that you need to rest and recover more than you actually have to pursue and work. Because chronic stress without recovery depletes energy reserves, leads to burnout and breakdown, and ultimately undermines performance. If you're an Olympic trainer for an Olympic athlete, there are two sides of the development regimen that you have to focus on. Number one is the training schedule. This is our training schedule. But a person who's signed up to be an Olympic athlete, they're already obviously obsessed. You don't really need to push them to train. The one thing you do have to push them, though, is to rest and recover. And that is just as important as the actual training is, because if they overtrain, they will start getting diminishing results. 
that the real separation between the great Olympic elite athletes is their ability to stay in rest and recover mode, right? Same thing with all of you at the office. You're overtraining. You're starting to move into diminishing uh, returns. You're starting to buy back your progress because chronic stress, energy reserves, and all the rest of that. Your judgment is is waned, and you're producing less results. So let me give you a game-changing mindset shift to adjust this. You get paid to rest. As an Olympic athlete gets paid to do their rest and recovery, so that they can go back to the training and operate at the highest level, so do you. This is a funny story. So the last uh, Masters, I was watching the Masters at my favorite chair in front of the TV, and I uh, called the guy to come and wash my car. So the guy shows up. He's like, hey, what? My wife's like, who's this guy? Come in to wash your car. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, he's going to wash my car. He's like, $50 for somebody to wash your car? Isn't that a little ridiculous when you sit here on your butt? Well, these are conversations the wives have with their husbands, right? I said, here's what I want you to observe. Right here, me right now, I'm making money. Right now, I'm making money. Because if I don't rest and recover, and I go back to the office, and I'm not operating at my highest level, we lose money. This is as productive of a thing that I could do right now. Now, a lot of people like washing their car, and it's meditative, meditative, and all the rest of that. No, for me, it's work. It would still be stressing out all my adrenals, right? So it's cheaper, way cheaper for me to spend 50 bucks to have somebody for an hour and a half wash my car while I sit here and rest and recover in front of the masters. Now, as funny as that sound, it's absolutely true. But because of our culture, we have this addictive thing we have to be doing, doing, doing all the time. And if we're not, we're guilty. And you're, you're, you're overtraining, you're overtaxing, and you're getting diminishing results. You want to make ultimately success a routine. We talked about it. As, as something just like brushing your teeth that you do automatically without having to think about it. And you ultimately encode success. Practice becomes permanent, both good and, and bad practice. As John... Maxwell says, ultimately, the secret of your success is found in your daily routine. We talked about those habits in the last session. So let me just show you a way in which to implement this. So make it practical. I find that if, if I can kind of reveal some of the things that I do, maybe it'll give you an idea or at least some context for how to do this for yourself. So there's really only two parts of your day that you have full control over. I mean, let's, I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, what's the, what's, what's the old adage, what's the best way to make God laugh? Tell them your plans. Right, exactly. So there's only two parts of the day that you really can't control your day. When you just get out of bed and just before you go to bed. And we know that everything in the middle of those two points is absolute mayhem, crazy making, right? You can plan and you can chunk and you can isolate and all the rest of that. But for the most part, stuff's going to happen. But those two parts of the day, you can't control. So this is where you want to embed the most important routines or habits or rituals that are going to take you in the direction you want to go. So I'm just going to give you mine real quick. So when I first get out of bed in the morning, 5 or 5.30, I had to train myself, by the way, to get up at 5. I was a night owl, you know, pursue deep into the night, but I had to time shift myself to get up early and go to bed earlier so that I could get up at 5, 5.30 in the morning. It's when there's magic in the morning. And then I heard Jerry gets up at 3.30 in the morning. That's crazy. And 
And Carol gets up at 4.45. Made me feel bad about myself, but I get up at 5. <laughs> I, set, I let it snooze once while I sort of think about the day. Who am I going to meet? How do I want to show up? How do I want to encourage? Just sort of set the tone. No big deal. And then I put on the coffee maker. And my, my uh, chiropractor friend was after my butt forever. You've got to stretch more. You've got to stretch more. You can't work out without stretching. It's costing the health of your back and so forth. So I tried to do it before I worked out. Tried to do it in the middle. Tried to do it afterwards. Tried to do it in the morning. Tried to do it. Nothing worked, right? So I figured I have to embed this into a ritual that I do every time. So I found that the coffee maker takes eight minutes. And that is the perfect time while the coffee's brewing that I do my little stretch routine. So I, I got an eight-minute stretch routine that I learned from Dr. Oz. And what was funny, this morning, so I get up blurry-eyed, I find where the coffee maker is, I, I get it going, and then I'm like three minutes into my stretch routine right there in the middle of the living room of the hotel, and I, I realize, oh crap, I'm stretching. I, in other words, I was doing it automatically without actual conscious intent because it's become part of a ritual. And that's what you want to do. You want to embed these things that you have to get done in some sort of a ritual that happens automatically without thought. Then I read for 30 minutes, set my iPhone, no more than 30 minutes. Something positive, something instructional. And as soon as the alarm goes off, wherever I'm at, I close the book up. Because if it starts to bleed in the 45 minutes or an hour, the next time you think of it, you're like, I don't have time for that right now. But if it's only 30 minutes every single morning, you can always do it. Then I do what's called a calibration or review. I just sort of look at where I'm going. The five-year, one-year, quarter, month, week goals, no big deal. Just sort of, I just want my brain looking at the environment around me to see if they can attach anything that's relevant to my goals. I figure out what my vital, I review my vital functions, my vital metrics, my vital priorities, and I figure what are the three most important priorities for today? And then I figure out what's number one. And then I do one jam session right there in the morning. One 90-minute focus jam session. It's the best time. The world hasn't woke up yet. They haven't started attacking you via email and text and at the door. And in 90 minutes, you can get more done before 8 o'clock in the morning than most people get done all day long. It's kind of like the old army commercial, right? We get more done by 9 a.m. than you get done all month. Same thing when you can do one of these 90-minute jam sessions first thing in the morning. So that's my morning bookend. And then in the evening, just real quick, I plan for the following day, just look at the calendar, make sure that I've got everything set. What are the MVPs? What's the number one? What's the chunk? I work out in the evenings. I've tried to do it in the mornings. Doesn't work for my biorhythm. I work it in the evenings. Then I do what's called a sprint prep, like this suit. First thing I did when I got here last night is I threw this in the shower and let things steam. Probably great for the environment, but it's great for steaming your clothes. And then I ironed it so that this morning I could just get up and Bang! I don't have to think about anything, right? So I pack or I iron or I prepare meals so that I'm, I can just take it on the go in the, in the morning. I, I stuff, get my briefcase ready, get my car ready. And so all I have to do is get up and just go. So I do that the night before. Journal for five minutes. What are any ahas, any things that came up, anything I'm grateful for that particular day. And then I read for 30 minutes. Something positive, something instructional. What's the worst thing you possibly could do before you go to bed? Watch the news. I can't believe that people watch 10 o'clock news and then go to bed. And now all of a sudden, their whole brain is just on fire with murders and wars and crime and all the rest of these things. Find something positive for your mind to focus on for the eight hours that it's going to spend munching on it. And that's it. That's the just before bed. Now, let's talk about vital metrics. It's just a review. Same thing. The three key behaviors and track it. And then use a gyroscope. Those are your vital metrics. And then lastly, Vital improvements, okay? 
How do you focus on the few things that you need to improve on the most so that you can move the needle in the area most important to you? So let me give you just, I'm just gonna cover this quickly. Some mistakes that I see in people in their learning and in their development. We need to learn less, actually, because we're absorbing all this information, all this information, all this information, and doing none of it, and we need to study more. I had somebody on Facebook say, you've inspired me. I've decided I'm going to read 32 books this year. And I said, I'd rather you read one book 32 times would be more helpful than just reading a book, putting it down, and picking up another, and doing none of it. So we need to learn less and actually study more. So let me give you my personal development plan, okay? I call it my 115313035101010 plan. <laughs> it's actually a lot simpler than that. Let me show you. Take the number one goal, we talked about the big three, but what's the number one? And then what's the number one skill most important to achieving that goal? Is it better communication? Is it consultative selling? Is it better presentations? Is it emotional intelligence? What is the one skill most important to achieving that goal? And then take this new skill that you've focused on, and I do one new skill a quarter, and immediately go and buy the top five books, focus on mastering that skill. Just go on Amazon, bam, no big deal. The top CD or DVD programs focused on that skill. You can find a lot of stuff at success.com. And then one seminar, one seminar focused on that key skill. Okay, that's all I, all I do. And if you're not sure which books, which CDs, ask some of the top people in your industry because they've read the books and they've listened to the CDs and get their recommendations. Now you go, well, how do you have time to do all this personal development stuff? Simple as this, 30-30. Remember I said 30 minutes of reading in the morning. And then while you're driving, instead of listening to Yak Radio, put in one of those CDs that you've got for that quarter and turn it into what's called net time, no extra time. While your hands are busy, your mind is free. And you could do it while you drive, you could do it while you walk the dogs, you could do it while you exercise, or while you run, or while you travel. And you spend 300 hours in your car on average every year. You could get a PhD degree in any skill you want in those 300 hours, because you're gonna take the 300 hours anyway. So simple as that. And then treat it like a race. I treat my personal growth and development like a race. So it's like, when everybody else is listening to music, I'm nourishing my mind, right? When everybody else is traveling and, you know, and, and doing the rest of this, I'm feeding my mind. When everybody else is, is walking their dogs, you know, and I'm feeding my mind, right? So just treat it like a race. I mean, nourish your mind in as much that can point out what's right, what's possible, what's abundant, and what you're capable of, because it will point your life in that direction. So you go, well, this stuff is expensive. How much, you know, I don't, where do you find the money to invest in all this personal development? Simple as this. When I was 18 years old, um, we all know by ancient tradition, take 10% of your money, carve it off, tithe to help other people. Okay, fantastic, wonderful, great. Take another 10% and carve it off and tithe to yourself and reinvest it in your personal development. So this is a philosophy that I was taught by Brian Tracy when I was 18 years old. He said, look, for every dollar you invest in your personal development, it adds $30 to your bottom line over time. It's the best investment you can make. Now, a lot of you are in the financial industry here. 
take a look at the difference between the results of these other investment products and vehicles over the last several years versus a potential 3,000 return if you invested in yourself. Before you fund your 401k, before you fund your retirement plan, fund your personal development. I asked Jerry last night what he would attribute his success to, and it's just this constant growth and development that he got on this appetite um, influenced by his mom and his father's discipline he had given attribute to. And as a result of it, this is where he's arrived. That's a huge ROI versus the amount of money if he put it into his 401k. So that's what I suggest is the return on investment. And as my mentor, Jim Rohn, said, never begrudge the money that you spend on your own personal development. It's the best investment you can make. And then lastly, I just always like to boil it down to one. Just pick one skill. If all you do after all we've talked about today is figure out one skill you're going to focus on improving and growing and mastering, just pick one and then attack it with everything you've got, with a vengeance. Just attack the development of that skill. Buy the five books, three CDs, one seminar, and then just attack it, and your life will be different as a result. So on the uh, text that you get back, I will give you a worksheet that takes everything we've done and allows you to walk yourself through it so that you can focus your attention on what you need to stop doing, what you can do, and then answering some of these key questions that we've talked about here. The last principle that I want to give you is this. Because this one was worth so much money to me. You've been gracious to invite me in. I want to pass this one on to you, okay? And I learned it when I first got into real estate. How to really, really, really crush it. So I went to a seminar. There's a theme here, it seems. And I got a chance to take the seminar leader out to lunch. Because I was the only one, apparently, who asked them to. So we go to lunch. And I'm 20 years of age, just getting into the real estate business. And I said, okay, man, just what do I got to do? What do I have to do to be successful in real estate? Just tell me what to do. I'll do anything. And he's like, all right, anything? I said, yeah, just what's the most important thing for me to do? He says, go fail. He says, yeah, go fail a lot and go fail big and go fail fast. I'm like, wait a minute, dude. I thought the whole idea of success was avoiding failure. He said, no, 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 it's exactly the opposite. You have it all wrong. And then he gave me this quote from Thomas Watson, who said, the key to success is massive failure. Now, don't, don't just hear that as some trite motivational quip. Consider that for a second. Let that marinate on your brain. The key to success is massive failure. Now, the look on my face was like the look on a lot of your faces. So he went on and explained. And he made it, he, he wrote out this little analogy for me. He said, look, life is like a pendulum. And on one side of the pendulum is pain, rejection, sadness, and failure. And on the other side of the pendulum is joy, love, happiness, and success. If you just stand still, you won't experience any pain, rejection, sadness, or failure. But you won't experience any joy, love, happiness, or success either. And he says, you can't live under a bridge. Eventually, you've got to mill about. So what you end up doing is you end up finding this little comfort zone, right? You're only willing to experience so much pain and rejection and sadness and failure, so you only experience so much success, joy, and happiness. And this ends up becoming a comfort zone that you're not willing to stretch yourself out of. And people wonder why they're not getting greater results. He said, now look, you can't push the pendulum on the side of success. 
He must have went to a Jim Rohn seminar. What you pursue eludes you. You can't push it on the side of success, but you can push it on the side of failure, on the side of rejection, on the side of defeat, on the side of pain. So your job is to go experience as much pain, rejection, sadness, defeat, and failure as possible. Push the pendulum high and wide on that side of the pendulum. And he says, I promise you, it'll swing back in equilibrium. And so I took him seriously. I said, all right, bring it on. And I went back to the marketplace and I said, where can I get as much pain, rejection, defeat, sadness, and failure as fast as possible? So for some of you that are familiar with real estate, there's a few places. One are expired listings, right? These are people who had their house on the market with another agent. It didn't sell. It comes up on the multiple listing service. And by 6 o'clock in the morning, like 30 agents call them. After about the 10th or the 15th one, they are aggravated. They are mad. They are upset. They are ticked off. Lots of pain and rejection and sadness to be had calling on those people. When I was done with them, then I would go to the death trap of all realtors. I would call on for sale by owners. These people hate realtors so much, they wouldn't even think of listing their house with an, with an agent. Call on them, lots of pain, rejection, sadness, and defeat to be had there. Then when I was done, I would park my car at the end of a street. I would take out my little notepad. I put 50 check boxes on it. And then I would just go in a white shirt and a tie, door to door. People love that, right? Right? <laughs> knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. Do you plan on buying or selling a house in the next six months? Slam, cursing at the door, dogs chasing you down the street, kids throwing rocks at you from across the street, rain. I would not allow myself to get back in the car until I had 50 check boxes on that notepad. So when somebody slammed the door, when somebody said no, when somebody rejected me, how did I feel? Delighted. Yeah, I'm one checkbox closer to being done, right? <laughs> Then I would go home and it was called five to nine is money time. Why five to nine? Because that's the window in which people are eating so you can catch them at home. Call people on the phone during that time. Lots of pain, rejection, sadness, and defeat to be had there. I push the pendulum wide on the side of pain, failure, rejection. And as he promised, it swung in equilibrium on the other side. In 90 days... I was out selling an office of 44 agents, 20 years of age, no business being in the real estate business. I saw a recent, uh, I saw, recently I saw a photo of myself when I was 20 years of age, and I'm like, who would list their house with that kid, right? More listings, more escrows than the entire office combined. At the end of the first year, more business than the number two and three agent combined. At the end of the uh, following year, number one out of 3,000 agents in the entire county. Not because of any great talent or any great skill, but because of this one strategy right here. Because every once in a while, those, those expired listeners are like, okay, yeah, all right, fine, you. Every once in a while, those, those for sale owners are like, okay, I'm tired of this, yeah, just list this thing, get it off my plate. Every once in a while, you knock on the door, like, you know, we're just thinking about what this house is worth. Why don't you come in here and tell us what you think? Every once in a while, you call somebody on the phone, you're like, you know, our daughter's looking for a house right now, maybe you can help her. And that's how the pendulum swung in equilibrium on the other side. Now, to this day, to this day, this is, all, this is a new comfort zone. If I get to the end of the month and I have not had some embarrassing, defeating failure, I am mad at myself. Why? Because I want more success. Well, what is the key to success? Massive failure. If I am not pushing the pendulum, on the side of failure, rejection, sadness, or defeat, then I can't get it on the other side. 
And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. To see failure completely differently. To learn to love it. I mean, like, seek it. Like, enjoy it. Like, celebrate it. Instead of making a goal for all the number of new clients or new successes you can make, make a hundred no contest. Who can get a hundred people to tell them no the fastest? Right? And whoever wins is celebrated. And then another extra prize is whoever has the most gut-wrenching, heart-stomping, embarrassing uh, failure wins the biggest prize. And carry them around on the shoulder. Because as soon as you stop having this resistance or this tentativeness about potentially failing, and that you pursue it and you turn failure into fun instead of fear, it opens up all the floodgates. The only thing stopping you from anything, the only thing from tapping that greater potential that I said all of you have, that you are underperforming to, is your reticence around the fear of failing. And when you turn that into a pursuit that you love and celebrate and it becomes fun, all of a sudden, floodgates open, potential realized, achievements beyond your wildest dream. When I had a chance to spend some time with this guy in a box at a Mavericks game, I asked him what he thought his greatest key to success was. And he gave me an answer. And later I found this answer show up in an actual commercial. So let me have him tell it to you in his words. The video. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Yet the world knows him as one of the greatest players of all times. They know him for his successes. And the way that he created all the successes was through great failure. I'll introduce you to another giant failure. I mean, this guy's had some public flame outs. You remember when he drove a tank down Madison Avenue and he was going to take over the cola industry and he had virgin cola all over the tank and he, he dressed up in fatigues? That failed. Virgin vodka? Gone. Virgin cosmetics? Bankrupt. Virgin cinemas? Virgin clothes? Virgin cars? Remember when he dressed up in drag? Now, how many CEOs dress up in drag? That's putting yourself out there. Virgin Brides is now defunct. But here's his motto. He said, screw it, let's do it. If you fall flat on your face, just pick yourself up and try again. The guy delights in failure. He's not tentative or reticent of whether it might or might not work. Screw it, let's do it. If you fall flat on your face, just pick yourself up and try again. Or as Eleanor Roosevelt said, do something every day that scares you. It's one of the metrics that I write down every night. Did I do something today that scared me? If I didn't, it was not a successful day because I didn't push the pendulum. If I want a greater expanse, I've got to push it. I started with the story of my dad. I'll end with one. I'm eight years old. We're skiing Heavenly Valley. And uh, it was the first time I skied by myself. And now Heavenly Valley, they had the Olympics there, right? And they have this last run, it's called Gun Barrel, and it's big double black diamond, and I wasn't supposed to end up there, but I did, and I had to get down. So I'm like, man, I, I don't want to 
lose my streak. You know, I didn't fall down one time. So I just, I went down really tentative. It took me a long ass time, but I finally got to the bottom. I saw my dad and ran up to him and said, dad, 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 guess what? I skied by myself all day long and I didn't fall down one time. And he said, well, you didn't get any better. He said, look, until you push yourself beyond your current skill level, until you fall down, you can't get any better. Falling is part of the process of growing. Failure is part of the process of success. And we had painted on our garage wall these words, no pain, no gain. And I've lived by that mantra. And somebody says, if there's one mantra you would attribute your success to, this is it. No pain, no gain. It's kind of like at the gym. Your program calls for 10 reps. And you do the 10 reps, and the last 10, you start experiencing pain. Well, now it's the two, three, or four that you do after that that the growth begins. The first 10 just got you to the table. Those are table stakes. It's what you do after you experience the pain that determines the growth that you get. Same thing when you're prospecting or you're working through the day, and then you hit the wall, right? You know that wall where you're like, I, I'm, I'm done. It's the amount that you push past the wall that determines ultimately the success that you achieve. And so don't avoid pain, pursue it. And then once you enter it, delight in it and just push yourself a little bit further. And the little bit further is what's going to give you the strides over your competition and enough of those over time and they can't even see the back of your bum. And no matter how talented, skilled, or experienced anybody else is in your marketplace, you can beat anybody at anything. You can accomplish any goal over time if you just stay consistent. And so the productivity secrets of super achievers are simply this. Number one, stop doing what fools do. Two, master the few. Number three, outfocus your competition. Number four, outlast them through consistency. Number five, measure, monitor, keep an awareness on your progress. And then lastly, outfail your competition. You do those half dozen principles. I promise you, there's, there's nobody, nobody outside of this room who didn't get the clarity and the structure of these half dozen things that can possibly keep up or compete with you. And then hopefully, all this applied, 18, 24, 36, 48, 60 months from now, maybe one day we see your shiny face on the cover of Success Magazine. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys, I hope you found that as inspiring as I did. I just thought that was great, and I wanted to share it with you. Now, take that information, take everything that he told you, and go out there and try to apply that to your life. We're all busy. We all have tons of things going on, but that's not an excuse. Figure out what you should be focusing on and go do that and be a super achiever. Remember, if you want to be a real estate investor, if you want to get involved in real estate and really do something big in this business, there's only one way to make that dream a reality. Just start.